Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Baby, it's cold outside, but we're getting hot and bothered up in here. Actually, it's also very cold in the studio, so that's a lie. Welcome to Whining About Herstory, the women's history podcast where we whine about women from history that you probs haven't heard of but deaf should have. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And thank you so much for joining us. Yay. We're just, we're like baby stepping into 2022 and uh, yeah. Yeah. Shit's happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I was going to say, I don't know if baby stepping would be right. It's more like... We're just kicking it in the balls. I mean, we, we, we kind of are like there, there's, I feel like there's been no acclimation period to 2022. No. At least for me, it's like, oh no, we're going to get real serious real fast. Right. Fucking well, now. literally the first Monday of 2022, it was like, you have this class and it's probably going to be your hardest class this semester. Yeah. <laughs> have fun. Oh my like, God. Oh, great. Yeah. Luckily I have two weeks off of that class now. Oh, it just nice. fell that our second and third week are both asynchronous. Like, I'll still have to do stuff for it, but I'm like, that's kind of nice. Yeah. They did that on purpose. They were like, man, this class fucking sucks. We're not going to have any psychologists if we keep making them take this class. Let's at least give them a break. I'm actually really excited for it because it's psychophysiology. So it has to do with, like, the actual, like, you know, neurons and the structure mm-hmm. of the brain and stuff. So, Ooh, my lady from a couple weeks ago could help you out with that. Yeah. So I'm excited. Rita. Rita. Was it Rita? Yeah, Rita Levi Monticelli. Monticelli. (laughs) Yes. I was actually listening to something today, and that's what apparently someone said, is that they're like, if you you ever have trouble pronouncing a word or a name from a different language, try saying it in that accent, and you'll actually probably be closer to the correct pronunciation than you trying to say it in your own, like, accent which is funny because i i think i asked uh our friend liz who's a spanish teacher this once i was like is it offensive to try and like mimic the accent she's like well i don't expect it from my students but like if you want to speak the language there is an accent involved like you know there there are certain inflections and mouth sounds and diphthongs and all that stuff going on and yeah like i mean it, it is what it is yeah like going Hola, me llamo. Yeah. Es Emilia. Like, people aren't going to fucking understand you. Well, it's like when I say Snigarochka, like, I have to have that, like, slightly Russian accent. Otherwise, I feel like I don't say it right. I love it when you say Snigarochka. Say it slowly. Snigarochka. Oh, my God. That is everyone's ringtone right now. Done. It's my ASMR. Yes. (laughs) Speaking of ASMR. um, Hello. Oh my God! People. Hi, hi, ASMR Daddy, Daddy. and uh, other listeners. Yeah, and our our crossover I, listeners. Yeah, I never would have thought we had crossover <laughs> listeners. I'm totally okay that we do, and maybe we'll get some more now. Oh my God! Yeah. So if you're not aware, in uh, episode 130, I think it was. Yes, so not where last my week. Lovely but the week sister-in-law joined us. Yep, we had been talking about ASMR Daddy, and Caitlin had this like really great vocal fry, and we were talking about like, yeah. oh yeah, ASMR Daddy, and he posted about us and like posted the audio clip of us talking about him, and because one of his listeners was, was like, listening hey. to us and was like, hey, whining about her three was talking about you, ASMR Daddy. I was like, what? Yeah, we're a little starstruck. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I don't know. I was like, oh my God. Uh, first, I just need to say I had my natural reaction to anytime someone reaches out to us where I yep. think they're yelling at me. I was like, oh no, I know. Like, I did like, I oh. say something super offensive? Did I make ASMR daddy mad? I know, right? I'm like, but he oh, was God. super nice. and He was. He so was welcome. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, he said he's he's, he's gonna like, listen. I, I like wine and learning about women. I'm like, all yeah. right. So welcome ASMR Daddy and, and other fans. Yeah. And thank you to our crossover listener. I'm so or listeners honored that we would be in that same realm. Like, I don't know, that makes me really I feel valid. It, I feel it, validated. It was suggested to us that we should have a OnlyFans where all we do is read wine labels sexily. Oh. Caitlin suggested that. I oh, know, that's right? right. Yeah. No. Done. Doing it. I'm like, that would be great. I don't know if OnlyFans would be the appropriate. No, I think it would have to be an ASMR thing. Yeah. Yeah. But like maybe. Dude, that could be some Patreon content. We get some like really slutty wine labels. Yeah. And we just read them and you just like do what you do when you <laughs> hear sexy wine labels. I don't know. These are NPR voices. <laughs> yeah. And you can just do what you do alone in the dark. Hashtag bring back phone sex. <laughs> <laughs> not sexting. That's different. It is different. And oh my I God. feel like not as personal. No, it's super not. I've done that when I'm like grocery shopping. Like I'm never actually yeah, you're not engaging. actually paying attention. I'm never engaging in anything sexy when I've done that. I'm always like just like dinking around on my phone or like running errands. Right. You're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Oh uh. yeah, I need some flour. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, but whatever. Right. All right. So Kelly, you picked our wine today. I did. We're back to wine. Yay, wine. Um, so this is a German wine. It's mm. called Elektrisch, and it's a Riesling Cabinet 2019. And it doesn't have a description on the back of the bottle, but I looked one up. So it says, although many of the country's young winemakers look to emulate the concentrated style of Klaus Peter Keller at Seehof, which is who made this wine, okay. Florin Fouth does the opposite. Here, clarity and freshness reign king. However, the Keller influence isn't totally lost on Seehof wines, as Klaus Peter is Florin's brother-in-law. Electrish <laughs> is an insanely thirst-quenching bottle of Cabernet Riesling that shows of tart citrus and wet stones, marked by electrifying acidity. Because Electrish does mean yeah. electric. Oh, see, I thought it was just like a stylized thing. No, it like, means electric. Oh, no, it's it's not like electric. It's it's electric adjacent. It's electrish. Like, it's electric adjacent. I, I didn't realize that was the German word. I mm-hmm. thought they were just slurring when they wrote it. Yeah, well, I wasn't sure either. And then like the, the first line on a lot of the websites was electrish means electric. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Okay, thank you for spelling that out for me because clearly I did not put two and two together. So here's to uh, sexy wine labels. Cheers to sexy wine labels and ASMR daddy. <laughs> here, here. Ooh, that was a good clink. Ooh, very tart. Very good. I really like that. I am actually not drinking the wine today. Um, I didn't sleep well last night and I also have not really eaten today. So I figured putting any alcohol in my body would be very irresponsible. So I'm jamming out to some hot apple cider because it's cold. I got you. I had to rescue my dogs every time I let them oh, out yeah. today because it's it's so cold that they actually give up and they're yep. like, I can't move. Yep. And uh, we uh, we have the problem that our oldest dog, our 15 year old, like she'll go outside, but she just she'll stay right in front of the door. And then I'll let her in, and then, like, ten minutes later, she'll pee somewhere because she's like, fuck that, it's too cold to pee outside. Oh, yeah, one one of my dogs took a shit inside, and I, I looked at the shit, and I looked at him, and I'm like, 
I'm not even mad, dude. I fucking get it. Like, it's if cold. If I had the shit outside, I wouldn't want to either. Yeah, like, that's why I have a toilet inside. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, we've, we've had that on, like, really cold days where the dogs will have accents. I'm like, dude, I don't even blame you. It's Right, like, I'm a little annoyed, but it's, yeah. like, negative 10 outside, and it's fine. Yeah. It's it's not fine, but okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, who's you going get to go oh, first? Shit. I went okay. first last week. I was not prepared for that. Hold on. Let me find my notes. Ba 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 ba. Oh my god! I had like a cider burp that was like on the cusp of coming out, and it just got stuck in my chest, oh, and that's then the just worst. like it wouldn't it wouldn't come up, and so I'm just like burp, damn you! <laughs> we have dead air here. <laughs> Okay, so today I'm whining about Ruth Graves Wakefield, the cookie mother. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh. this is a, this is actually a set of notes that I should not be reading on an empty stomach, but maybe that'll help. <laughs> so Ruth, Don't worry, I'll feed you after. Thank you. So Ruth Graves was born on June 17th, 1903 in East Walpole, Massachusetts. Did Wa- I? Walpole? W-A-L-P-O-L-E. Did I say it wrong? Probably. Do I care? I fucking don't. After graduating high school in 1920, she went on to attend Framingham State Normal School's Department of Household Arts. Wow. So she majored in home ec. And after graduating, she taught home economics at Brockton High School and worked as a hospital dietitian. And then, you know, just for some extra cash and to, you know, take up the day. She was also a service director at a utility company. So she's got three fucking jobs. I was like, the first two sound very much like, yeah, that's roles women would fulfill. The last one, kind of less so. Well, I thought she was like, I imagined an operator, which was a very feminine Thing to do yeah, I guess it depends on what service director means yeah I don't know it doesn't matter it's literally not relevant but okay. I just thought it was like oh man this bitch has three, three fucking jobs. jobs she's just fucking getting shit done work so in 1926 she married Kenneth Wakefield mm. and they would have two children together Aww. yay for them and their procreation again kids are not important okay here's where the story actually starts to get interesting In 1930, Ruth and her husband bought a tourist lodge in Whitman, Massachusetts with the... I hear, like, foreign podcasters try to make sense out of the name Massachusetts. And I feel so bad for them because I'm like, if I didn't grow up knowing how to say it, you look at that word and you're like, well, this is just absurd. Fuck this word. I can't even say it right. I am sober and I'm like, Massachusetts... It sounds like a weird sneeze. Massachusetts. All right. So they they buy this tourist lodge and they name it the Toll House Inn. And normally I would think that naming an inn Toll House would be poor marketing. But the inn was located halfway between Boston and New Bedford and historically had served as a midway rest point for travelers where they would pay a toll and stop for food and like, I don't know, switch out their horses or whatever people in the olden days did. Right. Hit the hit the uh, McDonald's drive through. Heck yeah, yeah. So Ruth put her household arts education to good use, cooking all the meals for the patrons, and she was damn good at it too. She was a fucking genius. The inn expanded from seven tables to over six d six zero. It became insane. Yeah. 
It became famous for Ruth's lobster dinners and decadent desserts, the recipes for which she inherited from her grandmother, or just straight up created herself because she is a magician with and food. A boss. It's a boss ass magician bitch. And it was such a big deal that Joseph Kennedy Sr., father to all the Kennedys, yeah. even visited. Like, oh shit! Yeah, like th- this wasn't like, oh, what are the local hot spots? Oh, well, this is cute. It's like, no, this is a fucking destination. Yeah, and that's huge. Yeah. Like the Kennedys were so big in their name. Yeah, and I don't know at what point in his Kennedy life he history. visited. Yeah, like how big was he? But Joseph Kennedy Senior had a lot of money for quite a long time. Yes. So one of their slogans on their promotional brochure read. Confusion is unknown, which I thought was kind of interesting, but that comes back. So just like, okay, put I'm that like, away that, in the vault. That confuses me. I, well, confusion is very much known by me right now. Exactly. Confusion is where I am. I assume someone is here. So in 1931, Ruth published her own cookbook featuring some of the inn's most famous recipes, and it was appropriately named Ruth Wakefield's Tried and Trued Recipes. Good. Did I say tried and trued? Yep. I was just going to let it roll. That's not what it was called, but that's what I'm calling it now forever. Then in 1938, Ruth did something fucking amazing. Even more amazing than... Making amazing food. Yes. Ruth loved experimenting with recipes, especially desserts, because she knows where my heart is. While returning from a trip to to Egypt, Ruth came up with a new variation on the butter drop dew pecan icebox cookies. I have no idea what those are, but they sound delicious. But yeah, I tried to find like a consistent recipe and I could not. So if you know what a butter drop dew pecan icebox cookie is, good for you. So, as she said, we had been serving thin butterscotch nut cookies with ice cream. Everyone seemed to love it, but I was trying to give them something different. She's like, Mm. oh, people are happy. I can make them happier. (laughs) I can overdose them with happy. Oh, we're very successful and everyone loves my stuff. I can make them love it more. (laughs) Like, she she has no chill. (laughs) So, according to family lore... Ruth's original plan was to melt squares of baker's chocolate into the blonde cookie batter. And just Mm. like me, anytime I try to bake something or cook something or do anything in the kitchen, she was missing an ingredient. Or in my case, it's like 80 ingredients and one of them is expired. And then I'm like, have to have that come to Jesus moment. Like, if I bake this hot enough, will the salmonella just die? <laughs> have you ever been like halfway through baking something and then realized you don't have one of the ingredients and you're like, how bad do I want this? Yeah. Like, do I want to go out and buy whatever it is or do I just want to scrap the whole thing? I, uh, and I mean, maybe other people have done this and not had the same experience, but I was baking a cake once and I didn't have vegetable oil. So I used olive oil. You could Ooh. taste the olive oil yeah. in the cake. I was like, oh, Oh, the olive oil is making itself known and it shouldn't. Yeah, you're like, damn it. But so she's missing an ingredient, the baker's chocolate. 
Oh. That's, I mean, if that's what she's going to do, like, yeah. that's kind of a key thing. So instead, she took a Nestle semi-sweet bar, but was too impatient to melt it into the batter. So she took an ice pick to chop the bar into tiny pieces and then added them to the batter with nuts. So instead of melting the chocolate in with the batter and mixing it all. It's like chocolate chunks now. Exactly. So instead of the chocolate pieces melting into the dough, they remained intact. And thus, the chocolate chip cookie was born, y'all. Chocolate chip with pecan. I mean, my mom makes chocolate chip cookies with nuts. That's true. Yeah. We're all a little nuts. But like, it blew my mind. I was like, I've never thought about how the chocolate chip cookie came to be. And then to know a woman invented it. I'm like, what? On accident. Well- Actually, that's probably not what happened. So Ruth's invention of the chocolate chip cookie is often portrayed as accidental, um, you know, the result of inadequate ingredients and impatience. But food writer Carolyn Wyman refutes this in her book, The Great American Chocolate Chip Cookie Book. Get that in my mouth right now. Uh, She argues that Ruth was not the type of person to just wing it like the legend suggests. Ruth was a perfectionist and her recipes were incredibly calculated. As Wyman writes, quote, nowadays people love the dumb luck story of the person who wins the lottery or invents something because they were doing something else. But what she did was still revolutionary. So she's like, even if it wasn't an accident, it's almost more amazing that she's like, no, I'm going to do this on purpose. And this is also backed up by the Toll House Inn slogan that I mentioned before, confusion is unknown. The weirdest slogan, like, I'm like, what are you talking about? But she's just so like, no, I know what I'm doing at all times. Right. So I I honestly, I kind of believe that she, it wasn't an accident. Because also, like, this woman is running an inn. I'm sorry, she's not going to go out. She's not going to make sure she has her ingredients. She's not going to run out for the baker's chocolate. She's just going to, like, jab at a Nestle bar with an ice pick. She's going to be like, fuck it. (laughs) That's what kind of shocked me. I'm like, if her whole thing was that she was going to add Baker's chocolate, she strikes me as a person that would make sure she had She's Baker's literally chocolate. traveling back from Egypt, brainstorming this recipe and like obsessing over it. Like, what am I going to do when I get back? And she doesn't have like, like the key ingredient. Yeah, I, I don't believe it. Now, here's the thing. If this was me in the story, everyone would be like, shit, I'm surprised she had any of the ingredients. She had flour since when? What do you mean she didn't burn her house down? So Ruth's cookbook was reprinted 39 times and the 1938 edition featured the recipe for the quote Toll House chocolate crunch cookie. The cookie's popularity exploded during World War II. So when soldiers from Massachusetts were stationed overseas, they would receive care packages from home, which often included the Toll House chocolate chip cookie. They would share these cookies with their comrades who often were from other states, which led them to then write home being like, send me some fucking chocolate chip cookies now. I need this. I need more chocolate chip cookies. I am fighting the world. I need my cookies, (laughs) which like... I feel like if you're in a, a war scenario, it's things like that that really like keep you going and become it extra you precious. Of home and you know stuff like that, or just just like a simple pleasure. Yeah. So Ruth was suddenly inundated with letters from all across the United States asking her for the recipe, and the chocolate chip cookies' booming popularity also led to an increased sale of Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bars, Ooh. which were used in it, and that drew the attention. 
of Nestle. none other than Andrew fucking Nestle himself. I just realized something. It's coming. Just keep going. Oh, okay. Andrew Nestle and Ruth Wakefield made a deal. Ruth gave Nestle the right to use her cookie recipe in the Toll House name for $1 and a lifetime supply of Nestle chocolate. So she would never be without. And honestly, she has her priority straight. She's like, I know where that money's going to go. I'm going to just buy chocolate. <laughs> so just give me the chocolate. Nestle then began creating and marketing chocolate chips specifically for chocolate chip cookies and included the Toll House cookie recipe on its packaging. Ruth, that's what I realized. Yeah. I'm like, it's going to be Nestle Toll House because it that's is. what it is to this day. And I have that in my notes. It is literally still the same thing. So Ruth gained national fame for her recipe being featured on the radio program, Famous Foods from Famous Eating Places, hosted by Marjorie Husted, Ooh. who's better known as Betty freaking Crocker. I'm like, yeah. oh, that, that wasn't a real name. Yeah, okay. I thought it was too. <laughs> so after uh, struggling with long-term illness, Ruth died on January 10th. 1977 in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which is actually the day that this episode comes out. Wow. Did not plan that. Super did not plan that. That was, ugh, I have a chill. Yeah, that's insane. On New Year's Eve, 1984, the Toll House Inn burned down in a fire that had started in the kitchen. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of burning things down, it yeah. was not me. I was not born yet. I have an alibi. I did not exist. <laughs> That's a good alibi. Yeah. So the inn was not rebuilt and the land now hosts a Wendy's and a Walgreens, though the Toll House Inn's location has a historical marker. So you can still like find where That's it was good. and then like, I don't know, go get some Tylenol and a square burger to celebrate. I don't know. Does Wendy's have chocolate chip cookies? That one I should. I know McDonald's and stuff yeah, does. I that don't one know should. if Wendy's does. So Ruth's original recipe is still printed on each package of Nestle's Toll House morsels. Wow. So that's the chocolate chip recipe I usually use. Th that's the one my mom always used. I was like, oh my God, I have been jamming on Ruth's cookies since I was tiny. Right. How insane. Yeah. So chocolate chip cookies are a dessert staple and the industry is worth approximately $18 billion Jesus. in the U.S. That's just the U.S. And that is the story of Ruth Graves Wakefield, the cookie mother. Yeah. Nom, 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 nom. That's insane. It's it's funny because I think this is one of those things where like I opened up a new tab and you know how you get those articles where it's like, oh, check this out. And yeah, I was like, like suggested for you. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what? This is insane. Because, you know, Google knows what I'm thinking at all times. But yeah, that's, I'm like, I've never thought about the chocolate chip cookie or where it came from. And I didn't know a woman invented it. I would have asked for more than a dollar in a lifetime supply of chocolate. Two dollars. Two dollars. Buck fifty. Yeah. Tree fifty. Tree fifty. <laughs> oh no, you don't like Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> I almost made Kelly do it. Mm. <laughs> that was some. Let's that was some that. like college nostalgia right there. <laughs> I was like, hold it in. Oh hold my god. Hold it in. All right. Oh. So Kelly, who are you whining about today? I am whining about Esther Letterberg. Ooh, Esther Lederberg. Yes, L-E-D-E-R-B-E-R-G. Lederberg. Or Lederberg, maybe. Maybe. All I'm right. going to go with Esther. So Esther Miriam Zimmer 
was born in the Bronx in New York on December 18th, 1922. So we're coming hey. up on her birthday. Hey, I'm walking here. Hey, I I'm walking here. Everyone in New York is like, fuck these Midwestern <laughs> bitches. <Click. laughs> um, her family was had an Orthodox Jew background. So that's, you know, they're mm-hmm. very religious. Her parents were David Zimmer, who was a Romanian immigrant who ran his own print shop in the Bronx. And Pauline Geller Zimmer was her mother. Stay-at-home mother. Her brother was born just a year later, um, and they were both children of the Great Depression. That was a crappy time to be a kid. She recalls that her lunch often would consist of a piece of bread topped by the juice of a tomato that was squeezed over it. Oh, my God. I know. That's so gross. (laughs) She was very close to her grandfather, and when he tried unsuccessfully to teach her male cousins and brother Hebrew... She asked him to teach her instead. This was a really unusual request because in the Orthodox Jewish tradition, at least back then, I don't know about now. So if this has changed, I'm sorry. Well, and it, it also depends, like, you know, they're different they're di- sex do different things. Have, have and, like, different yeah. levels of intensity. and So at least in their sect, it, it wasn't traditional for girls to study Hebrew. But Esther really, really wanted to learn, and she learned it very quickly. Her grandfather was very, very proud, especially when she started doing all the readings for their Passover setters, seders, um, which is a Jewish ritual and ceremonial dinner for the first night or first two nights of Passover. So she started doing the readings in Hebrew, and her grandfather was very, very proud. I actually uh, helped throw a Passover seder when I was a part of the Jewish student organization. Yeah, me and Rena Mm -hmm. held it in a local church, and she was a little creeped out because she's like I'm not supposed to go in a church I was like yeah but it's not it's it's a building right now and if anything this building is more Jewish than Christian because we're literally having a Jewish ceremony and it was very exciting for us because you get to you guys were going into the chapel I assume you just used like a meeting room or something I don't remember I think so. It, but it was very exciting because even though we were underage we were allowed to partake in the wine which was very bitter. Um, kosher wine, uh, do not recommend. But, you know, of course, we're like, I think we were maybe like 19 or something. And like walking home, we were both you pretending like to be drunk. Oh. And we wore like, I think she actually slipped and fell on the side. She's like, I think I broke my ankle. I'm like, we literally each had like two sips and that, that did That's nothing to us, funny. but we were, you know. Yeah. And it was, it was a really interesting experience because it's telling the story of Passover and then every... Um, every food has a different symbolic meaning. Oh, that's cool. For of like the the struggle of the Hebrews and all that. So it's, it was super super fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal that she was like reading. Yeah, for the Passover Seder. Oh yeah. So she would attend um, high school in the Bronx, graduating in 1938 at the age of 15. Jeez, that's high school. So she graduated early. Very early. Very early, because you usually graduate high school when you're 17 or 18. I was going to say, you turn 15 when you're a freshman. (laughs) So she's smart. Uh, She was awarded a scholarship to attend New York City's Hunter College starting that fall. And she initially wanted to study French or literature or, you know, something like that. But she switched her study to the field of biochemistry because one of her teachers recommended that she didn't do it. Because that teacher felt like women would have difficulty pursuing a career in the sciences. So she was like, 
Fuck you. I'm going to do it. Oh my God. Spite is one of the best, best motivators. Motiv- I love she's like, spite for science. Right. <laughs> so she became a biochemistry major and she worked as a research assistant at the New York Botanical Garden, engaging in research on Neurospora crassa, which is a type of red bread mold. Oh, red bread. It red all bread comes mold. back. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she was studying with plant pathologist Bernard Ogaliv Dodge. Uh, she would go on to receive her bachelor's degree in genetics, graduating cum laude, so with honors, mm-hmm. um, in 1942 at the age of 19. Did they even have genetics in the 40s? Apparently. Were genetics invented yet? It's like plant genetics. That's insane. So early on, Esther decided to pursue a research-oriented career over the more financially lucrative job that was open um, to women during the Second World War, because 1942. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was in part driven by her belief that such jobs would be taken away from women once the war was over. She, she was, was right. super correct. <laughs> she was 100% right? correct. She also recognized that research positions were more open to women and provided greater opportunities to advance her scientific knowledge. Good for her. Yep. So after her graduation from Hunter, Esther went to work as a research assistant to Alexander Hollander at the Carnegie Institute of Washington. So, you know, big names up in there. Yeah. Uh, She would continue her work with the red bread mold and would publish her first work in genetics during that time. Every time you say red bread mold, I'm just imagining that sad little piece of bread with tomato juice squeezed over top of it. And I that's mean, what red bread say, mold looks like to me. I could say neurospora crossa. If you no, want. no, please don't. <laughs> In 1944, she won a fellowship to Stanford University. Oh, shit. Yep. And would work as an assistant to George Wells Beadle and Edward Tatum, who I think are big names in science, just considering I know kind of what you know, is coming. Yeah, well, it's, that's Channing Tatum's great-great-grandfather, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, as the <laughs> fellowship was not enough to survive on, she would supplement her income by working as teaching assistants in various laboratories and would obtain free accommodation by washing her landlady's clothes. Sometimes she had so little money, she recalled eating frog's legs left over from laboratory dissec- dissections. Ew! Like, I know that's a French thing, but it can't be the same. I know. Like, because frog's legs that you eat are prepared in a certain way, but to take the frog's legs that are left over after being dissected in a lab. Oh my God. Just fry them up with some oil. We talk about starving artists, starving scientists, man. It's the thing. She would go on to ask Tatum to teach her genetics, like more advanced genetics. And he initially... You know what? You know was like no, like you're not gonna be good at it, whatever. Until eventually, he was like, "Fine, I'm gonna give you a test. Here's um a bottle of dis distro Drosophilia fruit flies, and there was one fly in the bottle that had different color eyes than all the others. Why? So he gave her that bottle and gave her that question. I couldn't find her reasoning, but apparently she worked it out so successfully that not only did he start teaching her genetics, but he made her his class TA. He was like, yes, I will teach you and you can come help me. I wonder why it had different colored. Like of Some, all I'm the assuming flies. something with genetics. I, I hope she was. It's, I hope she probably was like, um, like Punnett Square, yeah, um, like a recessive recess- gene, like extremely recessive Cause it, gene. Because yeah, like in uh, in like high school biology, when you're learning Punnett squares, they cannot shut the fuck up about fruit flies. That's always the example they use. 
And honestly, what I'm imagining... Or flowers, because another famous experiment was done with a specific type of flowers. But I'm just imagining Esther, like, at the chalkboard, like, with all this, like, super complicated stuff. And at the very bottom, she writes, equals genetics. And that's the answer. underlines it and just goes, genetics, bitch. And she chucks the the chalk at And he's just like, oh, my God. It was a trick question. Everything is genetics. (laughs) It's the answer to everything. That's funny. Um... (laughs) So her work um, with Tatum and Beetle would actually greatly assist them of winning their Nobel Prize. They uh, Tatum and Beetle won the 1958 Nobel Prize for discovering the role of genes in regulating biochemical events in the cells. So she didn't win it, but the people she was working with did. Okay. Well, and they've got that thing, like, only two people, which yeah. I'm always like, that's fucking stupid. What are you what are you doing? Like, right. oh, three's a crowd. Fuck you, no Will Rhymes. I'm pretty sure more than two people have won it since then. Yeah. Um, so after her studying with them, she would travel to West uh travel west to California. And after a summer studying at Stanford's University Hopkins Marine Center, um, she would enter a master's program in genetics. Stanford actually would award her a master's degree in 1946. And her thesis was entitled, quote, Mutant Strains of Neurospora Deficient in Paraamniobenzoic Acid, end quote. That, no idea what that means. That title slaps. <laughs> Something about red mold being deficient in some type of acid. Yes. Yeah, it slaps hard. So that same year that she would graduate, she would go on to marry Joshua uh, Letter or Lederberg, um, who was actually a student of Tatum's. Oh. At Yale, who five months prior to them getting married had had written Esther a letter asking about her research. And so, like, they had only known each other for five months, but he was super interested in their research. And oh, then, that's you super know, cute. Then they got married. Uh, Esther would move to Yale's Osborne Botanical Laboratory and then to the University of Wisconsin once her husband became a professor at the University of Wisconsin. And she, UW! And she would join him as his unpaid research assistant, because, of course. Go Badgers. There, yeah, go Badgers. <laughs> there she would pursue a doctorate degree, and from 1946 to 1949, uh, she was awarded a pre-doctoral fellowship by the National Cancer Institute... Um, and the thesis she was working on during her doctorate was called, quote, Genetic Control of Mutability in Bacterium Essertia. Oh my God. Cola. <laughs> it's E S C H E R I C H I A. So Essertia. Essertia cola? I don't know. Coli. I know that that is right. Yeah. Um, she would go on to complete her doctorate under the supervision of a guy named R. A. Brink in 1950. Yay. Yay. I, w- I wish that I could appreciate these titles and like what she's doing more, but it's so. I tried to dumb it down, but there's only so far you can, you know, like before you lose what it is. Ex- exactly. But also just the fact that she's like researching and grappling with these like really big, impressive topics. I'm like, I don't even have no. to under the fact that I don't understand it is what makes it so impressive. Right. So as she was finishing her doctorate, she would actually make her first big discovery, and that was the lambdaphage, which is a bacterial virus or a bacteriophage that infects the bacterial species that I just had the hardest time pronouncing, <laughs> Escheria chia coli. So it infects, it is a bacterial virus. Oh, so it's it's a virus that infects, infects bacteria. bacteria. Yeah. Oh, that's 
gross. I isn't, hate that. Yeah, isn't that weird? Um, she spotted it when she discovered irregular patterns in a cell culture she had done that had different um, bacteria of this. E- you know what? It's E. coli. I'm just going to call it E. coli because that's what it is. Oh, I'm that's over just here the trying long to way. pronounce like the hot fucking A. Oh, that's just the long way Wait, of saying E. coli? Yeah, it's e. coli. Oh my God. Okay. So, and this included a strain that had been irradiated with ultraviolet light. She noticed um, that some of the colonies appeared to be missing some of their segments and further investigation revealed that this was due to a latent virus in the E. coli, which had become active when um, exposed to the ultraviolet light. Well, the strain that had seen ultraviolet light. So basically when these two strains met each other, this, this virus like transferred from one strain to the other and it was preventing growth. Subsequently, Esther was able to show that this lambda phage behaved differently from other known viruses. Unlike other viruses that multiply rapidly inside a host cell and kill it, the lambda phage integrates its DNA into the infected bacteria. Ew. Yeah. This allows the virus to pass on its genetic instructions and to produce progeny viruses to new generations of bacteria without destroying the host organism. Ew. Yeah. I hate all of this. She established further that the process was helped by a mediator she would call fertility factor F and that the viral genetic material remained dormant unless the bacterium came under stress. Where is your hand sanitizer and the Clorox wipes? Probably out in the living room. And my hazmat suit, because everything feels gross gross and dangerous right now. Yep. (laughs) This happened, for example, when cells were deprived of nutrients, at which point it would reproduce and destroy the infected cell. So, long story short, throw out your lettuce. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Today, the lambda phage is a key tool in molecular biology. In part, this is because it can it is grown easily in E. coli, and it is not pathogenic except in the case of bacteria. So it's nothing that'll affect us. Oh, okay. It just fucks up bacteria. Yep. Oh, I kind of like it now. It has proven particularly helpful in understanding the transfer of genetic material between bacteria and the mechanisms involved in gene regulation and how pieces of DNA break apart and recombine to make new genes. So it's very helpful. Very cool. So after her discoveries of the F factor and the lambda phage in in graduate school, her husband stopped her from conducting additional experiments to follow up on these discoveries. Because why? He's a dick. No, he was. Uh, I was rooting for him. According to Esther, um, he. Her husband was her thesis advisor, and he wanted her to finish her PhD dissertation instead of continue her experiments. Her graduate advisor, R.A. Brink, may not have recognized the significance of her discoveries at the time. She may have been fully recognized for her discoveries if she had been allowed to pursue them immediately. Instead, the delay hurt her legacy as an independent research scientist, and her findings on bacterial sex are now credited primarily to her husband. Oh, fucking A every time. In fact, most textbooks highlight Joshua's role in the discoveries made jointly with Esther. The lack the lack of credit to Esther is given for development The lack of credit Esther is given for the development of replica plating techniques has been cited as an example of the Matilda effect in which discoveries made by women scientists are unfairly attributed to their male colleagues. By the time Joshua won his Nobel Prize in 1958, shut up. Yep. Shut up. The research centers that were recruiting him saw Esther only as his wife and research assistant rather than an independent scientist. I'm going to rage quit this episode. Right? I hate this. Esther! Right. 
So Esther and her husband would conduct experiments together as well and um, investigate the way bacteria manage and adapt and become resistant to drugs to which they were previously not resistant to. Well, that seems so relevant. Right. In aiming to understand how chromosomes behave, they demonstrated for the first time that mutant changes occur so rapidly in bacteria that the process could be tracked in the laboratory. Wow. Yep. Although Esther was recognized as outstanding in the laboratory, both experimentally and methodologically, she struggled to get a permanent academic position. In part, this was because of the wider discrimination against uh, female scientists at the time. Um, She also had the further challenge of being married and collaborating with um, her husband, her husband, who tended to attract greater public attention because that's just how it was. Well, and if she is collaborating with him and because she's a woman, she's in like a lesser position of power, she is more susceptible to where he wants to go or what yep. he wants to research and what he wants, you know, it, and it's, she was super, she kind of has to follow anything. Oh, Esther, honey, she's just like a sweet little gem and, and like society in the world did not let her shine. Right. So in addition to all this, these discoveries she made, Esther also invented, um, a, the replica plating technique, which I'm sure people who do, Science. Science, no. Um, So this was devised by her in 1951, and it's a method that enables scientists to replicate bacteria colonies on a series of agar plates with exactly the same spatial configuration. Having access to these replica bacteria colonies was important for comparing the reactions to the environmental changes. So they're able to control C on the bacteria and then control V. V. Yep. So prior to Esther's invention, scientists had tried several methods with little success, such as using like blotting paper, metal brushes with small prongs, or even toothpicks. Esther's method was basically like a rubber stamp with an ink pad, except it was a colony of bacteria. God, that's insane. What blows my mind about some of the methods that they use in math and science and just like everything else is when you explain it, it seems so mundane. You know, where it's like, oh, it's just like an ink stamp, but with bacteria. Right. But it's like, yeah, but how? Like, that gives me more questions, because how does something like that even work? <laughs> right. So what she did was she attached a square piece of velvet to a piston ring. This was, and still is, first pressed on a Petri dish to get an imprint of the colonies to be copied, and then pressed onto another Petri dish. So you're copying. It's so simple. Right. And yet no one else thought of it. (laughs) What is vital to the process is the thickness of the pile of the velvet. The surface fibers of the fabric are used like hundreds of tiny inoculating needles to transfer the bacteria from from one Petri dish to the other. From this, you can make hundreds of colonies, each derived from a single bacterium. So you can transfer these to a series of plates and then put different ingredients, you know, or chemicals in them to see how they react. And you're working with the same col- So it's like you're exactly. able to run the same experiment over and over and over, but all at the same time. Yep. And then once the transfer process, you know, once that's complete, they can compare all these different ones to the original and see what the effect was. That's this, super interesting. right? And this process helped reveal mutant bacteria incapable of forming new colonies in the absence of specific nutrients. It also showed which, ba- you know, if a bacteria was resistant to specific antibiotics as those those would flourish on plates without the antibiotic and this replica plating technique proved um 
or paved, provided the first way of proving experimentally that bacteria develop resistance to anti- antibiotics spontaneously. Previously, scientists assumed such resistances was always caused by exposure to the antibiotic. Oh. Wait, I thought if you get anti if you like get antibiotics too much to treat things. It can things, cause that, but it can happen just randomly. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I, I love that science basically found out that like, yeah, there's no explanation. Shit just happens because nature is insane. Right. So I I found this quote by a man a guy named Luigi Luca Cavalli Sorvza. And this is this is a long quote, but I put it in here. Quote, Dr. Esther L- Lederberg has enjoyed the privilege of working with a very famous husband. This has been at times also a setback because inevitably she has not been credited with as much of the credit as she really deserved. I know that very few people, if any, had the benefit of as valuable a co-worker as Joshua had. Her husband, Joshua, so that was the quote. Mm-hmm. Her husband, Joshua, would acknowledge her work and contributions. And when the couple attended the 1951 Cold Spring Harbor Symposium, he actually discussed Esther's doctor- doctoral work on E. coli and acknowledged her as a second author. Um, Pharrell notes, which is a biographer, that he did not later acknowledge Esther's work when he wrote an autobiographical account of their discovery of genetic recombination in bacteria. So, like, when he was married to her and she was there, he would give her some credit. But then when he, like, wrote his own thing, yeah, just left her out. Jesus. In 1953, Joshua wouldn't accept an award from Eli Lilly and pointed out that Esther, too, should have been given the award because she played a pivotal role in his work. She downplayed her significance and argued there are six to eight people in the background of every time someone gets an award. Oh, Esther, I would have been like, honey. yeah, fuck you. Give me the award. I'm I so I'm mad at her husband, but I'm getting the sense that it wasn't like malicious. I think he genuinely just didn't was, un- get like because yeah, it's just how the times were. Yeah. Like, why would why would I give her credit? Right. Like, fu- you know, I, I genuinely think it was just kind of how he was programmed versus like he's twirling his mustache right. like, and like he doesn't get a full pass but he gets understanding yeah we 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 understand his actions in the context of the time and we also understand those actions are shitty yep so joshua would get an appointment as at stanford university as the head of genetics in 1959 esther would move with him and was appointed an untenured research associate professor in the department of microbiology and immunology This happened after she and two other women petitioned the dean of Stanford University's medical school over the lack of female professors on its faculty. Oh, my God. Her appointment was made on the basis that she be willing to accept the position untenured, even though she was very overqualified for this position. I was going to say, I I don't understand the hierarchy of science jobs but everyone that you're saying that she's doing i'm like uh, that sounds like something that she was doing like when she when graduated she yeah. yeah or when she was already in school why is she doing the same job over and over um in 1968 joshua and esther divorced that's just like a little sub note um but like many other women scientists at stanford university esther would continue to struggle for years to get recognition in 1974 or 15 years after she started Stanford University finally changed her title from senior scientist to adjunct professor. This still did not give her tenure and was actually a drop in rank. 
Are you fucking... So they demoted her. Basically. What? Her, her contract was to be renewed on a rolling basis and was dependent dependent on her securing research grants. God. Right? I'm, I'm getting angry. I know. Why Why did we not end... Stanford. Why did we not end with cookies? Um, yeah. <laughs> Esther was subsequently invited by biochemist Stanley Cohen to become the curator of Stanford University's collection of plasmids, small autonomous self-replicating DNA molecules. She took the position. Very fancy. So plasmids had first been discovered in the 1940s, and Stanford had built up a collection around, from around the world. In 1976, she, um, Esther was appointed director of Stanford's Plasmid Reference Center, or the PRC. And as curator, she became a key ar- arbiter in naming of plasmids and the genes that they carried. She would be the center's curator for um, until 1986. Oh, wow. So 10 years. She would retire from her position in the, in the Stanford Department of Microbiology and Immunology, but continue her work at the PRC as a volunteer. So she stepped down as, like, curator, but she was like, I'll still help yeah. out. In 1989, she met Matthew Simon, an engineer who shared her interest in music. So she was really big. I never brought it up because it wasn't super relevant to the rest of the story, but she was really big into, like, medieval music. Oh, so, yeah. so like, some green sleeves. No, green sleeves is after. Oh. Um Whatever. That's the only old timey right. music I can she, she think of. She liked early music. Yeah. But so this this guy shared her like interest in that. And so they got married in 1993 Aww. and would remain married for the rest of her life. She died in Stanford, California on November 11th, 2006 from pneumonia and congestive heart failure at the age of 83. Oh, wow. So she was alive and we were kicking. Yeah. Wow. And I've never heard of her. So that's Esther... Lederberg. Lederberg. Oh, Esther, honey. Yeah. Girl, you shining now. She did a lot. They won't dim your shine no more. Right. Oh my God. That was that was frustrating because I kind of hit the hallmarks of like women in science and being overshadowed by men and undervalued because of their gender. And it's like it's just right. really stupid and it's frustrating. Yeah. But it's important to talk about because we, we still deal with those issues today. Exactly. Oh, my God. But, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I think we are all desperate for a thankfulness thing. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? What am I thankful for? Hmm. I don't know why I always find this so hard. Um, I, I guess it's going to sound weird. Um. I'm thankful to myself, basically, for, like, listening to my body. I took a sick day yesterday because I hadn't, like, I've been feeling really tired and I was starting to get, like, the beginnings of a migraine and I've just, like, not been doing well. And so I took yesterday off, you know, to get rid of the migraine and stuff, but also just to, like, take care of myself. And I'm really glad that I caught that because I do feel so much better today. So I'm guess I'm just I'm thankful for being able to have the time to take care of myself. That's good. Well, and honestly, we're so conditioned to 
deprive ourselves of self-care because it, it, it's it's all about the hustle. It's all about pushing through. And there's a time and a place for that. You know, I'm not right. saying like you should always just don't do the thing if you don't feel like it, but also powering through no matter what, it, it leads to burnout. You can't sustain that. So good for you for recognizing like I need a break. I need to take care of my body so I can get up tomorrow and do the damn thing. Right. That's awesome. I am thankful because one, my therapist is awesome. Uh, I had an appointment with her and it was really good. And she even walked me through, like it was a very emotional therapy appointment. And so then she walked me through this like meditation exercise at the end where it's like you close your eyes, you take like deep inhales and exhales and all of your feelings and like all the stuff that's discussed during the the appointment goes into a box and the box can be as big as it needs to be. It's going to fit everything. And then you close that box and you put it away. It's like, you're not forgetting it. You're not stuck it down but you're just like I will deal with this later because it's like I you know you have therapy and you get emotional it's like oh shit now I have to go back to work like ah! but that was really nice um I'm also really thankful because I have a wonderful network of people around me who support me and who are there for me and I'm Kelly is one of those people (laughs) she's looking at me like I got you, girl. So yeah. I got to call her out. But uh, I'm I'm very I'm very thankful. I'm very fortunate to have a network of people in my life who support me the way my friends do. We all love you. Aww, I love you too. Yay. Yeah, you're all right. <laughs> you're okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, where I just got cut up on all of our social media Go new episode Emily. posting as I got behind because I basically just went into this weird, like, not doing it depression mode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Instagram? Instagram, WAH Pod. I, okay. I said that. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you. Like, you can eat, message us on any social media and we'll answer you. One or the other of us will. Um, and we also have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 to find uh, extra videos and interviews and just random stuff. Mm-hmm. And we also have some sweet merch on our website. Go buy some merch, guys. It's real it's cute. Really cute. It's, it's real, real cute. Oh, my God. Yes. Do it. Also, rate us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps people Including find Spotify us. Now. Including Spotify, y'all. That's insane. We mentioned insane. that last episode. I'm so excited that Spotify finally added that. It, it kind of blows my mind. I know Spotify was a little, like late to the podcast game like I don't know I feel like they like dip their toes and like just having podcasts and then they're like oh people actually listen to podcasts on Spotify well I guess we should allow for them to do the most basic things that literally every other podcast platform allows you to do like leaving reviews shocking yeah so seriously even if you've left us a review on like iTunes or something go and like copy paste that shit put it on Spotify what's up Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.